But for 99% of the companies out there, customer demand is almost always the biggest risk. So just do that, right? Just implement that process. It's probably pretty good. If you want the real solution, I think the, the real answer. Welcome to the Innovation Metrics Podcast, where we bring you the latest on innovation management. We provide insights on how to measure innovation, innovation accounting, and managing the uncertain process of developing new, sustainable, and profitable business models. You can find links to the main topics covered in this episode and information about the guests and hosts in the show notes, or go to our blog on innovationmetrics.co. Your host is Aaliyah Eilert. Yeah, hi. Hi, Tristan. Welcome back on the show. Hey, thank you very much, Aaliyah. So Tristan is the founder of Chromatic. We will skip We will skip a big intro today. We introduced Tristan several times and just listen to our former episodes for a more, more elaborate introduction. And obviously there will be a lot about you in the show notes. And if you want to uh, reach out to Tristan, just check out the show notes and the links below and you'll be able to get in touch. Today, we want to talk about uh, what we call metered funding. We want to talk about how we fund innovation projects. And not just one single project, but what does the funnel look like? What does the engine of funding look like um, specifically in large organizations? That's that's going to be our topic for today, right? Okay, awesome, wonderful. So, I guess what we're what we're talking about is how we make decisions. So, how are we making decisions for exactly. like always <laughs> at scale? We have traditionally, we have funding approaches, like we, we know how to fund projects in large organizations for, for many, many decades. And many of us believe that's not a, very, um, not a very good way anymore, let's say. And let's start there really quickly. Like always, we kind of want to look at the problem a little bit first. So uh, traditional, traditional models of funding, in theory say that you have to go through certain steps like in order to you receive some money and then you receive more money and then you receive more money right um there are yeah talk to us about it you don't think so that's fantastic no or, I, I, yeah a number of different ways to allocate funding to different projects like i i think you're referring to the more traditional way where it's like I would like to completely reinstall uh, an enterprise resource planning software in my organization and the project's going to take four years and I need yeah. $20 billion. And then it turns out to cost $40 million, but you're already two years into it and you've already spent the $20 million. So we need another $20 million. Like that's, that's kind of like the, the very traditional investment process of large companies for large project planning, right? You ask for all the money up front, and uh, you're uh, what Eric Reese would call you're entitled to get that money as things go on just by the fact that you are working on the project. It's not based on kind of the accomplishment or, or impact that you're having because there, there is no impact as you go, right? You only get the impact once you're finished, at least in theory, right? So anything up to the point of final project completion, you're entitled to that money. Um, so I think that's, that's where we're starting from, right? Like that's the basis. Yeah. Interesting. So I thought, um, when he refers to entitlement funding, I thought it is very much, there is the idea of a, of a stage gate, 
but it's not really there. These gates don't really exist. That's how I interpreted it. Like um, when, when he spoke about it, there, wow. or am I, or am I like, I um, am I starting too late in in history? <laughs> so. No, I well maybe. Uh, I mean, stage yeah. gates have been around forever, but the stage gates are based based on things happening, right? Mm-hmm. You said in your four-year plan that after year one, you would do a complete analysis of the requirements and you would create a requirement, an an RFP that you're going to send out to vendors. Congratulations, you've succeeded. But the the four-year funding, the $20 million you asked for, that has already been allocated to you. You have now ticked the box and you have passed the stage gate or whatever it is you want to like it's still the idea that you are entitled to that money because you are doing the work, um, and that's in direct contrast to what Eric Ries called calls metered funding, mm-hmm. but is really based on the principle: is are you having the impact that you said you'd have? Right? I think the primary difference in these things is one is again like, well, there's nothing in my checking the box at the stage gate which says that my plan is good or that my RFP is good. There's no quality control there. It's just, have you done the thing? And even on different uh, stage gates, you might have a stage gate that's just like, are you uh, manufacturing ready, right? Has your supply chain process produced Six Sigma quality control specifications? That's fine, but that's still, that's we can say that's a measure of quality. It is literally quality control, but it has nothing to do with impact. You might have Six Sigma quality control on your manufacturing process, but be producing something that no one actually wants to purchase. Right. Being impact. What we mean by by quality in this case or impact is uh, really that there is customer value generated, that there is, or at least stakeholder value generated, let's say. Yeah. Fantastic. No, that's good. That's good. Okay. And um, so when we design these gates now, I suppose, or um, points of decision-making, whether or not we want to continue or not continue. That's really, that's really what we're looking for. So we, the terms there, um, how do we call these gates ideally? Like just to make sure (laughs) there's so much lingo flying around. I thought it was really nice to, you know, to, um, yeah, I mean, honestly, I don't really care. Uh, I don't, I don't care what people call them. I mean, I think the decision point is fine for, for this conversation, but people call them stage gates. People call them check-ins. People call them mm-hmm. stakeholder meetings. The, the committees right. that oversee these things could be an innovation committee or a steering committee or an innovation board or an investor board. Like there's almost an infinite variety of names for this thing. Uh, the one Eric Reese promoted is growth board, but I actually, I don't hear that too many in companies. Normally, it's some form of steering committee or innovation board, I think is a common term. Great. Yeah. Fantastic. So, yeah, maybe let's go with innovation board. I like it. And um, and then their, then their gates, these are the, the main decision points who have some sort of um, not necessarily always the same questions, but some standard questions we want to ask for, for, for a project to proceed, right? That's really what we want to look at today. We want to look at when we look at media funding or... Uh, that kind of funding approach, like, hey, how do we make these decisions? And I think many people are struggling with it. I see many people designing it and um, and I'm not sure, like they ask too many questions. Are we asking too little question? How standard, how standardized can we make these questions um, or these decision points and how flexible do they have to be? I think that's really the, 
and then how much money do we allocate? I guess those are the yeah. those are really the, the big issues, right? Or what? Uh, and then who's making decisions? But I think let's leave that separate for maybe the beginning and okay. talk about those two things. Yeah, I, agree? I mean, agreed. I think in some ways that I might just immediately contradict myself and say the, the language is kind of important just in terms of framing what these things are. I do think when, when people think of stage gates, it usually is like it brings to mind this, this massive bureaucratic process where you're checking off boxes and making sure you've done certain activities. Hmm. And so uh, I know that most of these things are called stage gate processes. And that is the common language. Like it's yeah. not my favorite. Hmm. Um, I, I can't remember who put it in in this way, but um, um, so it says they're less of kind of checkpoints and gates and more of gas stations. It's like the innovators are cruising along and eventually they run out of gas, right? They should right. automatically run out of resources. You are not entitled to gas for your car. You need to justify that you are going somewhere and that you're going somewhere useful and that yeah. we should fund you with additional uh, gasoline or some sort of accelerant uh, resources, right? It shouldn't be that we are stopping everything and now you must you know, show us your papers, please, to proceed. It's really that you need gas and we're willing to supply gas if you're willing to pay us in the form of evidence that your project is good. Right? So that's the decision that we're trying to make here is, is really are the benefits that your project is showing. Sorry, I just put myself automatically on this investor board. Uh, <laughs> you and I are now on this. <laughs> um, we're on the investor board and this project should be showing us, hey, if you give us gas, if you give us money, time, people, then we're going to give you this benefit. And here's the evidence that we have to justify that. Yeah, right? that's, that's the decision we're, we're trying to make. And I guess everybody's waiting for, hey, how do I make this decision right now and wants us to talk about it. But like one step, again, maybe one more, one more time about the language. I heard, I heard you saying, I think the first time saying uh, scale gates. And I, I guess the different. I, used to love, I, I love it. I, I really love it because. I can't get anybody else to say it though. So I'm, I'm giving sorry? up on I haven't convinced anybody else to use that term, I think, except from you. So uh, I'll give up. On <laughs> yeah, I'm easily convinced by you, I have to say. So we have to, and we, but what was good about that, or let's talk about that for a second, because we, we will get into that. What that implied, to me at least, is that with the skategate process, it was a go no go decision. And then that was it. You finished of the project, which hardly ever happens, which doesn't happen often enough. But if it happens, then it's kind of it. And, and, and we're at least traditionally, right? And so you really have to make sure you get through. Otherwise, it has career implications and so on. But with this, what, this, what the scale gate term implied, or as far as I understood it, is that really there is a loop within the gate. So it doesn't mean that, that the project is over. It might just mean that you're not getting through the next gate. But you might have very good evidence and reason to say, let me repeat this gate and let's say, find another, refine the problem, refine the solution, right? Absolutely, that's, that's a pivot, right? These decisions are, are often referred to as pivot, persevere, or kill decisions, right? right. Persevere meaning, meaning things are going well, keep on going. Maybe you could advance uh, to a, a higher level of testing or higher level of scale. Um, or pivot, meaning you've got to redo something here, like you've search for a customer, you tried out an MVP with them, and it wasn't quite right, but you realize the MVP, the MVP has something of value in it, but maybe it's a slightly different customer segment. 
right? Like those are possibilities, possible reasons to repeat the same phase. Uh, so I, I agree with you. A stage gate very much has this implication that there are only two options. Either you go on or you're dead, right? And yeah. uh, I think the, the principle of these decisions should be that you can repeat and you can pivot. But the, the reason I like the term scale gate was because I, uh, I advocate constructing your process around varying degrees of risk. Right, like yeah. that. That to me is the principle of the decisions here: is that we are trying to balance the amount of funding we're giving to a project with the amount of risk that it has. So, a, a highly risky project, for example, one that you have virtually no data from, it's very disruptive, but it's very new. You don't know what the solution is. You maybe have an idea of some technology. You don't really know what the customer is, and it's just very, very risky. And so the answer to that sort of project when it comes up for funding is, is not, here's your $20 million, take your four-year plan and go to work. It's, I will give you a small amount of money and I want you to generate some degree of evidence, like just enough to bring down the risk threshold. And then you can proceed to through the, th through the gas station, right? Here's some more funding. And I'm now willing to let you uh, kind of play around with a little bit uh, larger scale, right? Because if it's a it's a very risky project, and I'm in a very large organization with very large customers or a very large customer base, I don't want you launching a very risky project to my entire customer base. Like that could kill us, right? A bad product mm -hmm. launched to an existing brand that has a lot of brand equity. If it's done badly, it could kill us. So I don't want you operating at full scale. I want you operating to a hundred customers. Right? Once you can prove that that works, or at least it's not, not too risky there, I will let you proceed to the next scale gate and operate at the next level of uh, production capabilities. Um, that sort of kind of thinking of your risk in terms of scales of operations makes a lot of sense, especially when you're operating in um, uh, physical products, right? This, this type of thinking doesn't really make so much sense to uh, where I come from, which is technology products, because mm -hmm, this is the scale is zero to a uh, mm -hmm. billion. Mm -hmm. like, you put something in production and it works, you can kind of scale it up immediately. Mm -hmm. But even with those tech companies, you'll see Facebook launching products to what for them is maybe a small, uh, small degree of scale to a million people yeah. before they launch it to a trillion people, sorry, or a billion people. All right, so the same principle applies. It's like, how much risk do we want to allow this project to take on in terms of what scale are they allowed to operate on? And uh, how much funding are we going to give them? Which again is a, a, a is a type of risk. I'm willing to lose this amount of money and get no impact, just to see if there's uh, anything interesting in this innovation project. You want to spend ten thousand dollars and try and put out broccoli flavored ice cream? Go for it. Uh, it's not really going to impact my bottom line very much. I don't think it'll work. It's highly risky. But if it does work, I want a piece of that broccoli ice cream market. So. Um, that's what I'm talking about here. It's, it's moderating your risk by constructing kind of different uh, uh, scales of operation that that startups can play in. Yeah, great. So let's get into how how we make those decisions. So implied by what you just said, very much, um, it is there's a difference between the type of the type of company, the kind of product you're coming up with. But how can we how can we help the listeners and say, 
you know, this is generally, these are kind of the questions we want to have answered in the beginning, like to move on. I think, and correct me there, you have a, think your idea of, of these gates, like you don't really want too many, I think, is that right? Like, I think many people go with, let, let me, let me put it out there. So we have like some, sometimes we have like ideation and then we have validation and, and you know, all these terms and then well, we have problem solution, like problem discovery, problem yeah. solution fit, uh, you know, uh, MVP and, and so on, so on. So can you, can you run us either through what you typically see and what you think is really good? And we start at that level and then we look at the, at some of the questions, at least, um, as some of the ways we should make decisions from a quality, let me frame that again. So we have the decision points um, and how we name them. Then we have a qualitative, I guess, way of making decisions. And then we have a potentially quantitative way of making decisions. So then we have models and let's, let's get into that. So let's, let's talk first about the main kind of gates and um, what's out there and what you think is the best or what you think is currently uh, what you would suggest right um okay so what i see a lot is um typically like four four stages um i think that's very common i think it's uh i think dan Toma, esther gomes and tendai vicky in their book the corporate startup kind of map out here here four generic stages and uh it's something like ideate validate uh what is it oh no it's ideate is then it's problem and then solution and then scale up scale yeah right um hopefully i didn't just butcher their book but uh i think it's something along those lines um well or yeah or even the life cycle approach right where you go to sustain and then retire or renew so it becomes a bit of a bit of a loop yeah. i i think that's yeah, fantastic that's yeah, that that comes at the end. That's usually past launch, right? That's that's whether or not you want to re renew it and start it all over again or, or anything like that. Um, I think those four phases are in general fine. I do see people gravitate to four phases. I have seen three, but the most common is is four. I don't know why that is. You could certainly get it more fine grained, um, or you could get much more high level. Um, I don't know how to say this in a succinct manner, so. Maybe I'll just try and uh, synthesize, synthesize it like this. Um, if you are talking about innovation projects and you're trying to create an innovation process for just your core business, okay, which is kind of known and you're producing a lot of variations on the theme, as you said, you, you retire yeah. something, something yeah. or you add a feature, uh, you've got your iPhone, you've got your iPhone 13, you've got your iPhone 14. What's next is we're going to add uh, iPhone 15 is just going to have a lot of different colors in it. Right? Like that's a standard Apple thing. So for, no, you can only have it first in this one color. Now we have matte gray or whatever it is, or chrome or whatever flavor you want. Now comes the gold version. Now you have a bunch of different colors. Of course, they could absolutely launch all of those colors on day one, but they they stagger it out in this way. Uh, and that's kind of core innovation, like very incremental marginal improvements. If the innovation process you're constructing is primarily to manage those core businesses, you can have a very elaborate um, process, which has 12 different steps in it because it's kind of a yeah, known okay. process and it's always the same. The moment you start adding mm -hmm. really disruptive projects into that same funnel is where it doesn't work so well. And you have to have this much more simplified funnel. 
Um, and I'll just give you the, the very basic example, like let's take uh, what I'm hoping is the thing listed in the corporate startup, but it doesn't matter. It's just an example, right? You've got an idea. Now you want to discover and validate that there is a problem. And then we're going to go and discover if we have the right solution. And then we're going to go, if those two things work, we're going to test for viability and we're going to scale it up, right? So that's that's your, your funnel. It's basically like create an idea, um, uh, check, validate the desirability, then the technical feasibility, and then the viability of the business model. Okay, so very straightforward. Now, that process in and of itself sounds good to all us design thinking people who are very customer centric and say, focus first on the problem, okay? Doesn't work at all if you think about like pharma or biotech. It doesn't necessarily make sense, right? Because the first thing they're worried about is can we build this thing? Like we don't really worry about the price point of a new Alzheimer's drug. No, you know people will get want to get rid of Alzheimer's. Somebody's going to be willing to pay for it. Yeah. We're going to price it based on cost and based yeah. on demand, and there's going to be a lot of marks around that. But in principle, we're not so worried about that. So that order of operations doesn't make sense because you would come up with an idea. Hey, I've got this brilliant idea. Let's cure Alzheimer's. Great. Okay. Second stage, validate desirability. Check people want Alzheimer's. I don't need to spend any time or money in that stage. It makes no sense. Right? So that process... Uh, doesn't make sense in some contexts. You know, the, you, you might want to flip around the feasibility and desirability. You might want to test first for technical feasibility. Can we build the thing? And then let's figure out pricing. Desirability in this case is like we know it's desirable. It's just a question of how desirable and how much money people have. To who many? Yeah, to how many people? So it's more cool. Much real. Yeah. How do we convince the insurance companies to pay for it and things like that? So mm. um, you know what what seems like a standard all fit. A solution doesn't work when you start tossing in these different innovation types or different industries. So um, honestly, if you wanted the simplest possible thing, it would be ideate, validate, and then scale. It's a three-step process. And somewhere within validate, you have to validate both desirability and feasibility. Um, I, I feel like I'm making this both very, very simple and very complex at the same time. What I'm trying to say mm -hmm. is that any process you put in place is a somewhat artificial constraint. Right. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's semi-arbitrary. Mm. In most of the places uh, where where I talk to, um, you know, there are basically kind of quick on ramps or off ramps into different phases here. Like uh, if you have that same ideate, uh, validate the problem, validate the solution, validate uh, validate scale. Um, a renovation project or something that's kind of a core incremental improvement might skip a few gates and go right to uh, scale, or it might go straight to feasibility because you've already demonstrated the desirability. It's just a small improvement on that. I know people want the iPhone. I'm just giving them the iPhone with the gold trim. Like you don't need to go back to want to step one and validate desirability to a large degree because the level of risk is so minimal. It doesn't make any impact, right? There are, there are ways to modify this process to kind of make it map to that, but it doesn't really matter. What matters is not necessarily the order of operations here. What matters is that you do those three things, like that you validate desirability, that you validate feasibility, and that you validate um, Testing. Um, viability, business viability. And you validate them in the order of greatest risk. Like that's it. Yeah. yeah. Validate yeah. in the order of highest risk. Fantastic. Fantastic. Let me try to sum up. Um, we have 
on one hand. So the more uncertainty, actually, the less rigid process you want around, the less standardized questions you want to ask, the more the more clear you are on the type of innovation. So if you do a core, let's call it core innovation, like with, with little risk, with little uncertainty around it, like an incremental improvement on your existing product with existing customers, you can actually have more uh more pre-existing questions in place you can also benchmark already and is that because you said like you talked about like 12 gates or whatever but yeah i i we... think it, I, I think that's that's correct but it's basically a, a question of uh homogeneity right it's like if all, all of your ideas are the same and it's just different flavors of the iphone and different flavors of ice cream then you mm -hmm. can have a super specialized process right if you are trying to build an innovation process, which is not just capturing, you know, flavors right. of ice cream, but it's also capturing uh, supply chain improvements, uh, manufacturing improvements, financial improvements, internal yeah. process improvements, yeah. that's yeah. not going to fit into the same innovation process that you would for this highly specialized um, twelve-step process. So, uh, so I think the question you have to ask yourself if you are an innovation manager and you're building this process is, what am I building this process for? Is this for core innovation? Mm -hmm. Is it just for kind of demand side uh, innovation? Mm -hmm. Or am I also trying to uh, put the entire R&D process here, like materials innovation under, mm -hmm. under the same umbrella? In which case you're going to have to have a more abstracted, more, gen more generic funnel, something mm -hmm. more like Steve Blank's investment readiness level. So, so do we need actually three different types for let's let's say there are three different types of to make it a bit easier like, we don't want to go into like how to um what innovation means and what different types of innovations there are and how we can classify that is not really <laughs> some really rabbit hole i want to go into right now no, no, i want I to know, get to those questions and deliver like hey how do we make those decisions now um but uh but let's say there's like core adjacent and transformational innovation. Would, would that be fair? Like I, it's, yeah, I, I would like it's it. a perfectly fine classification system. Right. So we could say that for each type of innovation, and we do ideally want to allocate different budgets for each type of innovation and potentially have different little different strategies for each of them. We have this, uh, different ways of making decisions. Is that, is that something we could say or? Like, I mean, I think but, we have the problem between harmony yeah. here, like making sure, you know, folks can, can um, follow a specific system and know where they are in the process and so on and having enough flexibility. Like what you see, that seems to be, yeah. I, I mean, I think that's true, but I think it's kind of in, in some ways we've kind of skipped the, the question we should have asked before this, because we're, we're uh -huh. talking about metered funding. We're talking about stage gates, but when people, when organizations try and implement something like this, it's because they want to control or make more predictable innovation. Mm -hmm. um, when innovation managers want to do something like this, it's it's not just controlling the process. They're actually trying to change the culture. They're actually probably have some other things that, they're, that are on their agenda. Mm -hmm. Like the strong reason, I think the reason, uh, if anybody just who's listening to this is just like, please tell me what the gates I should have. Yeah, on. yeah. <laughs> Pick up the corporate startup book and just yeah. install those mm -hmm. four gates, right? Because the first mm -hmm. one is problem. And yes, that mm -hmm. will not work in all circumstances. Mm -hmm. If you're a biotech pharma company, I would mm -hmm. probably not implement that process. But for 99% of the companies out there, 
customer demand is almost always the biggest risk. So just do that, right? Just implement that process. It's probably pretty good. If you want the real solution, I think the, the real answer, and you're not trying to deal with, you know, trying to fix the culture at the same time as all of this, I, I, I think the answer goes back to stuff we discussed in previous podcasts, which is you should have a business case and the business case should represent uncertainty in the business case in form of ranges. And then based on what the business case tells you is the most sensitive variable, that's the one you go after. That is your biggest risk. That's the first yeah. gate that you should go through, right? Gate should be based on, I want your business case to you know, have at least this level of ROI or at least 10% chance of getting to this level of ROI. And I want no more than this amount of uncertainty. Nice. Nice. And for anybody who hasn't read those uh, or hasn't read or listened to those podcasts, I probably just said a huge mouthful. But all I'm saying is that, like, look, every project that I want to fund, I am only willing to give, you know, $10,000. This is my first scale gate, right? I'm only willing to give $10,000 and you're allowed to have this amount of uncertainty, like this width in your business projections. It could either make a billion dollars or it could make zero. If that's the range you're talking about of possible outcomes, you get max $10,000. Now, if you can tell me for the next scale gate, if you want to start playing around with and you want to send an email out to 10,000 of our customers, tell you what, I will give you more money for that if and only if you can demonstrate that the minimum possible outcome of this project is $1 million, okay? And your max doesn't have to be at a billion anymore, but I want to see at least that you have a 25% chance of hitting $1 million, right? So your range of uncertainty of your range of possible outcomes has narrowed. And I don't really care if that risk is because of technical feasibility or desirability or business viability, because you don't know what pricing it is, or you don't know what the cost structure is. That's okay. It doesn't really matter what what order of operations is. What matters is that you're addressing the the thing that that is driving the uncertainty of your model. And again, 99% of those times, the uncertainty is being driven by lack of consumer understanding, desirability. Mm -hmm. 99% of the time is probably going to be that, uh, even in some pharma uh, cases. But if you already know it and it's a core business project and you already know the desirability, then forget about that. Focus on, can you create a technically feasible product, which is beneath this price of manufacturing so that you have enough margin to actually sell it in the market? Totally valid. I, I think we need to, like, I'm, so you and I, this is kind of uh, what we nerd up on all the time, but um, maybe people who you know, who are just expecting like, Hey, tell me the, the questions I want to ask at those four gates, you know, kind of that, that is probably a bit of a leap right now. So just to, just to, just to spend a minute on catching up there. So, okay. so, the so basics. We, let's go. Let's well, the basics. I don't know. It's, it's tricky, right? Cause on one hand, yeah. I mean, you would hope people, folks listen to every single podcast. Whatever no, 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 no. The next one. Now, the I would, I do, I do. Um, <laughs> the basics. We can't, we can't play the game. Right. Yeah. Uh, like I'd rather I'd rather nail the basics than than nail the really complicated math stuff. Yeah, and the basics are exactly what we've just talked about. Like there are three things that have to work for a business model to succeed, like in the simplest possible format. Right. Like even simpler than the business model canvas. People right. have to want it. It has to be desirable. 
It has to be possible to build it at the right price point. It has to be technically feasible, in other words. And uh, the balance of the, uh, the desirability, which is the amount people are willing to pay for it, versus the technical feasibility, which is the amount it's going to cost you to build it, that is the viability, right? It's the balance between those two things. Um, and in this case, desirability could also include like um, sustainable impact, um, social justice, whatever other intangibles that you want to put into that. But it's just cost benefit. So those are your first three gates. And those are the questions you want to ask. Is this desirable? Is it feasible? And is it business viable? Is this a sustainable long-term business? But not necessarily in that order. And the way to achieve that, I suppose, and that's what I was trying to get back to, like that is, and the way to achieve that is to quantify it earlier. And so there is actually a way to do that. So when we say business plans don't work or business cases don't work, long-term predictions usually don't work, that's that's as much true as it is not because like the, if you can quantify uh, your uncertainty earlier, then that's how you can um, prioritize the questions you want to ask. So, and I guess that's what we want to get to. Uh, um, and that is done with, so what we call innovation accounting. You're really focused on, look, I, I'm just trying to get something started in my company. Then I think it really is, as simple as desirability, then feasibility, right? Then okay, right. Um, okay. So what we're talking about, or what you're getting into now, is is um, is is really well. I've worked on desirability to some degree, and there's right. still some risk in there. But okay. now the feasibility is riskier, okay. and so now okay. I want to work a little bit on how do I build this thing. And then, oh, okay, well, now I've reduced the technical risk. Now I want to go back to the market risk and focus on that, right? right? So in a real project, there's always a little bit of kind of bouncing back and forth between different priorities. Sometimes I'm working on uh, marketing because that's the riskiest thing. Sometimes I'm working on uh, manufacturing because that's the riskiest thing. And when you have a small startup, like out in the wild, not in a large organization, you have generally very, very limited resources, so you, you can't even afford to work on multiple of these streams at a time. But as you scale up, of course, you will have teams solely focused on feasibility, uh, solely focused on desirability, and then all the little sub-branches of that. But initially, well, sometimes you do have to have this bouncing back and forth, and that also happens in larger organizations. And that's kind of the reason why it doesn't always make sense to say, please do things in this order and only this order. It, it's, it's an it's an aggressive oversimplification for the purpose of just giving people something they can understand and work towards. Well, which is important, right? Like we, we can't, we can, so that's really like the, that's depending a bit on the maturity level and who makes decisions, I guess, and yep. how do people get rewarded um, and promote it. So, yeah. so that's okay. what I'm saying when I say you have this process where, where maybe it is this oversimplification of desirability, feasibility, yeah. and viability. Okay. But uh, as a decision maker on that board, you have to realize that um, you know you have to provide people with the, the the kind of human override to say, "Hey, team, you're working on the gold-plated iPhone. We already know people want that, so you can skip that stage. Just just go right to feasibility and make sure we we've got the gold." Um, like they're always, I think the decision makers have to have a keen understanding of what they're really trying to judge and encourage is uh, aggressive risk mitigation. You know, 
figure out what the biggest risk is and reduce that. And we want the teams to tell us what the risk is part is ideally. Um, it shouldn't just be about following the process. The process is a guide. It shouldn't be uh, it shouldn't be a checklist that if you don't follow, you're fired from the company. Like it's just supposed to be a guide. And, and that's the thing which I think bothers me about stage gates the most is because it's implemented in a way where often uh, people are going through the checklist without understanding why the checklist is there. And so they're not yeah. actually doing what they're supposed to be doing, which is mitigating risk. Yeah. 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 Fantastic. Yeah. Um, I'll take a step back again, like in, in a sense, if we could, if we can, so the question really always actually is where's the most uncertainty here? That's kind yep. of how we, that's how we should be guided. Now we know often desirability in average is one of the, is one of the big ones. We, we said before as in pharma, potentially that that's not the big one, but very often that's just one of the big ones. So like might as well, might as well go after that first. And the base for that is usually build something when you can solve a problem. So like, is there a problem? Yeah. But if, if we wanted to get rid of as many rigid gates as possible, right, where that doesn't even apply, then really the answer to that is, to the most effective system is, if we could build a model that tells us where that uncertainty actually is, isn't that, that's what I was trying to get to. Like, if we yes. could build a model earlier... I think it is very surprisingly very early. And that's maybe one thing I would say about it. The demarcation line for that is, so to say, is when we can define the customer journey. Would you agree with that? Like, yeah. Um, right. Well, well so if, if we take those three phases as our, as our default process here, right? So yes, you have ideation first, but desirability, um, feasibility, viability. Right. In that first phase, um, you don't necessarily know what the solution is. You don't necessarily even you're trying to discover the customer need. So it's very hard to even put something down on a paper uh, that says, I believe the price point for this unknown solution is somewhere between zero dollars and a hundred thousand dollars. Like even saying that seems ridiculous. Right. Because you have no idea how much it's right. going to manufacture this solution, let alone price it. Um, right. Yeah. So, like at that point, it's it's silly to kind of like construct a any sort of business case or innovation accounting for the whole thing. You should really right. just be sizing the market. Right, that's all you're trying to do is just right. say, is this a big opportunity? Is there enough demand there to make this make sense? In in that case, let, sorry for cutting in. Let let's let's maybe do it. The, let's maybe do it this way going forward. Um, so there's a there's that there's that moment in time where where we think or where you think, um it makes sense to build a model. Let's talk about the moment before. And so since we don't have a quanti quantitative way of, of, of making decisions, uh, let's talk about that moment before. So what would be the questions we want to ask? Like to get something very, like something more specific, you know, let's say there is either a manager or an early investment board, or, you know, like some people coming together and making this. As long as you understand what decision you're trying to make and what what you're trying to judge, you should be able to quantify something immediately. Right? Right. So it's just a question of what are you trying to quantify, right? At that first gate, uh, let's just say the first stage of um, desirability, mm -hmm. 
let's just imagine you've discovered a problem, but you just have no idea what the solution could be. It could be an app. It could be a physical device. Um, it could be uh, a, a service. It could be uh, if I'm trying to get somebody to remind me, uh, now I've, I've got Alzheimer's on my brain. So if I'm trying to get somebody to remind me to take my Alzheimer medication, right? Perfect use case, right? Because I have Alzheimer's, I have trouble remembering mm-hmm. to take my medication. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. right. Many different solutions to this. I could uh, have an app that sets a timer and reminds me. I could have, uh, so that's one thing. I could have a physical timer that dispenses the pill and I see it and I take it. I could have a person, a service that comes and knocks on my door and tells me to take it. Those are three perfectly viable solutions to remind me to take them. Uh, I'm sitting here staring at my vitamin case. So I I know well about these uh, need for physical reminders sometimes. Right, but there's a range of different uh, pricing that somebody's going to be willing to pay for that, and there's also a range of possible um, costs to develop that product. Now, I could on day zero include that entire range of possible costs in my model of like, well, an app is going to have an incremental cost of one cent per user. It's going to have a big fixed cost for developers, but aside from that, the incremental cost is zero. Or there's this whole thing where it's a physical person coming to knock on my door and tell me to take the pill, in which case the variable costs are going to be very high and the fixed costs are probably going to be pretty low. Does it make sense to build a whole model to include all that cost in manufacturing on day zero of this idea? No, don't bother. Like, it doesn't make any sense. The only thing that matters is the market sizing. So once you've decided, like, how are you making the decision? What are you making a decision about? If I'm trying to decide to invest in this particular project versus another particular project, all that really matters in the first get-go is the market size. So that's what we want to quantify immediately. And again, even on day zero, before I even type in uh, Alzheimer's into my Google search bar and see how many Alzheimer's patients there are worldwide, uh, I could take a guess and quantify that. I know there's more than one. Um, and I know there's probably less than a billion, right? There's 6 billion people on this planet. It's definitely less than a a billion people, right? So that's a very high range of uncertainty. And on day one, I can go and do a Google search and narrow that tremendously, right? But the point is that even on day zero, as long as I'm uh, allowing the entrepreneurs to put in a range, okay, which expresses their uncertainty, they don't need to give me the exact market size, what they need to do is express the range, right? And the number of people times the amount they would possibly be willing to spend for this uh, uh, medication reminder system, that's your range of possible market sizes, mm-hmm. right? And you can do, do that on day zero. On day one, you get a little bit of information, you reduce the range. On day 10, you get some more information. On day 20, you should be ready to make a decision as to whether or not this particular idea or another idea is worth additional investment. Funny how we ended up quantifying again. You can always quantify, um, even on day zero. It's just that you're not quantifying to a precise number. You're quantifying your level of uncertainty. Yeah, fantastic. So there really is no, the only, so I'll tell you the only moment before quantification that I think would make sense is, uh, I, again, don't remember who coined this phrase, but something like a founder market fit, right? Like, do you care about this problem? Mm-hmm. Right. That is something where I, I think I suppose you could probably quantify it, but it's not worth it. Right. When you have an idea, you have to think for yourself, is this an idea that I really care about and that we have the capabilities and team to actually execute on? So it's much more of a strategic question, right. more of a where to play, how to win question, more right. of just a where to play 
question like, does this domain make sense? Even before I size the market, is this a domain we would ever go into? Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. And okay, I, remember, uh, I remember there was a, I, I was at a lean camp in Germany somewhere. I think it was in Stuttgart. And uh, somebody gave a presentation, which was a, it, it was a very good presentation. It was probably one of the best executed uh, case studies of doing lean startup that I've ever heard, right? It was a, a, a startup team um, uh, that basically said, we're going to do the customer discovery. We interviewed customers, and then we put up a landing page to do demand testing, and then we sized that with Google Ads, and then we did a concierge version, and then we did a Wizard of Oz version, and then we did a full prototype, and we rolled it out, and we demonstrated market viability of this idea. And uh, I, I might be making this up at this point because it was so long ago, but I'm pretty sure it was Uber for hamburgers, right? And this was a long time ago, right? Before you could get everything delivered, before Uber Eats, they were like, we can do Uber for hamburgers. So you want McDonald's, be delivered to your door. You want a high-end yeah. burger, delivered to your door. Yeah. Whatever it was. And at that point, uh, once they had demonstrated desirability, technical feasibility, and viability, at that point, the team got together with their um, uh, with, with their whole team, and they said, "Okay, who's going to take this project and run it and scale up?" And um, the answer was no one. Right? Nobody in the team actually wanted to be the CEO of Uber for Hamburgers. Okay, so, um, and the reason I'm a little shaky on this whole thing is because, uh, as you know, my German is pretty terrible and this entire case study was in German. So I, I was uh, having to ask a lot of questions as, as it went through. And so the question I asked them was, hey, um, couldn't you have asked that question when you started the project right. instead of demonstrating desirability, feasibility, and viability, right. and then asking, do we want to do this project? Could you have not asked everybody like, hey, assume this works. Would anybody here be really passionate about being the king of hamburgers or the burger king, the burger king as the case may be? Sorry, I had to say well, that. You know, so, you know what happened, right? I have to say this now. They didn't have somebody from Hamburg. No, they, clearly, clearly. There was nobody from Hamburg there. But uh, I will let the German had, in the room. Had to, I'm from Hamburg. I had to say that. Right, so, there you go. Yeah. So yeah, there, there was no one from Hamburg in the room and they didn't want to do that. But that is the first question that you should ask before quantifying anything. Oh, he went dad joke in episode. Sorry. <laughs> so stupid. That's fine. Yeah. So thank you. That is brilliant. How do we translate? That's brilliant. So we, we need to translate that to corporate now, I think. Like, I think that's that's fantastic. And I think this is something we see in, in the startup world, right? I think it's very real. Like when we say, I don't, I invest in this team, that there's something about it, right? Like, do I believe in these people? And like, do I believe? And I think a sub question of what that VC would look for is, are they passionate about to go through exactly. the dips and the horrors of actually running a startup? As we know, it's not very, it's usually not that amazing, you know, other than yeah. if you do an exit, or at the very beginning, like everything in between is tough. So, and, and similarly for, for a corporate startup. So how do we translate that into, into, into the corporate world, into large organizations where we may want to make sure we have the right people for the right project? I think that's what you were saying, right? That's really one of the most fundamental early decisions. That's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. That's the pre-quantification question. Yeah. Right? Uh, you can't 
you can, it's just not going to work out very well. You, you can't assign a team always to work on a project because, um, you know, if you assign a team to a project that they don't believe in and they don't care about, and it's not a problem space they're, they're, they think is worth solving, you know, if, if it's a team of people who think like, why can't these people just pick up their own pills and set a timer on their clock and, and solve their own issues, then obviously they're going to fail at that project. Uh, they're going to sabotage it consciously or unconsciously, and they're just not going to put the effort in. So uh, for, for I think I've been blessed by, by working with teams that are passionate about these projects. Generally, they're, they're not going to come talk to me unless they're passionate about those projects. So I haven't really had that issue. And I have heard uh, most investor boards that I've worked with have always had a keen sense of, are these the right people for this project? Are they passionate? Are they willing to put in the extra hour at midnight if that's what it takes to succeed? And um, I, I haven't had that issue too much, but but I think right. it is a real question. So I'm kind of glad you brought it up as a pre-quantification question. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, I, I'm uh, a friend of mine who he, he worked at Google and he talks often about how um, you know how they have they have a bit of slack in there and they can do what they want and stuff. So I guess that's a really great way of like you you know somebody is gonna and that sources projects and I guess that's a great way of sourcing projects, right? Because like like you probably wouldn't do what you're not what you don't care about. Like why would you? You can do what you want. Like probably interesting, not. probably you know, not quite. Really enjoy fixing bugs, so uh, you know. But um, <laughs> tell them maybe that's not the right person to work on this innovation project. Is is not mm. the person who really just wants to fix bugs and work on the back end database. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think that's perfectly reasonable. Like, do you have founder market fit? That's kind of a that's the question startups would ask, and I think Funny, corporations yeah. would ask is, do we have the right to win in this space? Do we have yeah. the, the core capabilities necessary? I smiled about the term when you when when it was when you when you said it, you know, it's like oh another fit, and I'm like yeah, that's a really good, you know, five minutes later, I'm like yeah, that's a really good, that's a really good one, yeah. It's a reasonable question to ask. Yeah, awesome. So where are we at? Uh, we're at we. So we have kind of three main questions we want to answer. I guess um, how do we answer them? I th there's literature out there. So um, we we pitched a corporate startup book here, I guess. Um, right? Is that, that really what we had? Um, uh, if, if you want a basic introduction to setting up your own innovation program in your company, I think it's a, it's a good place to start. It's a good place to start. Um, yeah, but I, I don't know where we're at right now, to be honest. I'm, I'm, the, I'm the host here, so I should really make sure it flows. And I'm not. I'm failing. Okay. Well, that's... <laughs> That's something we need to figure out in editing. Then um, I think uh, I think then it sounds like we're wrapping up, and I'm pretty late. So yeah, thank you so much. It was a great episode. Thank you. Check out the show notes for everything for anything you need for anything about the episode. We're going to put a lot of links in there, and if you want to talk to Tristan, um, that's a good place to start. And thank you very much, Tristan. Awesome. Thank you very much, Ilya. Talk to you soon.